Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think uh, more and more the hospitals are run by people with MBAs and, and, and that have not as much patient-focused interests. And that's just... No, I don't think it's a calm. I don't think it's an opinion. I think it's the, it's the reality. And that puts a lot of stress on, on the people and, and, and the systems. I think we'll just dive straight into it, right? So um, I like to start very much with understanding the person and and why and what drives you to do the work that you do today. Kind of just maybe set the scene to our audience. Yeah. So while well, I'm a practicing cardiac surgeon, I've been in practice for now just about 15 years. I'd say the greater portion of my practice has been in, in academic institution, cranking out volume, uh, doing a lot of cases, being in all the committees and meetings and Personally and professionally, I'd say about three to four years ago, really was hitting a lot of roadblocks. Um, it was all clear at first, but it, you know, it was like not the large things, but little things, you know, like uh, failed relationships, money issues, a lot of HR visit, angry. And then at some point, I just, I just uh, sort of the wheels fell off the wagon and I couldn't just function. Something had to change. And it started with a with a personal journey of journaling, journaling for myself, and then gradually uh, speaking up about it and have others uh, come to me about, about this. And, and, and the concept, and I think we'll talk about it later, but of this more of a chronic problem that was sort of underlying this whole acute issues of burnout or, or, or deceptions or things like that came to uh, fruition and then, and then made the book. So... Yeah, and like the book is um, the book's awesome. My wife sat next door; she's a doctor. A lot of her friends have read it. Yeah, man, it comes at the perfect time to be having this conversation because coming off the back end of the pandemic, while there's still a lot of cases and there's a, in in the UK there's still quite a lot of hospitalizations, the reality in respect to the healthcare industry as a whole, I think you know you guys put a lot of care on your patients, but. I don't think that's a reciprocal process in respect to you. You guys don't get the care back. Yeah, it's uh, it's you know, and I think I talk about it in the book. It it's it's a it's a profession that you don't really expect sort of a tap on the back or immediate reward. And and as and as long as you do, you know, the the work becomes real hard in the sense that you know if you're looking for gratification or if you're looking for immediate you know thank yous. Uh, they just don't come in uh, as opposed to other specialties because I'm interested in 
now in my personal journey with other spaces with high intensity environments, for example, athletes, right? They do as professional sports, they go through, they have similar themes, you know, in, in terms of intensity and perfectionism and that kind of stuff, but they get the immediate reward, right? So the immediate claps, the immediate sort of money reward. And so it's, it's a, it's, it's a time that can be a thankless job for sure. Yeah. You're right. And I remember you write in the book, like some patients will mistreat you and dislike you without you being the cause. But I guess the focus is on the majority that appreciate you. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a bit that, and, and understanding that people, we play a small role in, in the people's journey. And when people come to see us, they are in the acute you know, they're stressed. They, it's, it's life-changing issues for them. So they expect a lot and it's not always, you know, intentional, but they put a lot of stress on the workers and people that take care of them. Yeah. And I guess like the book is about putting yourself first to avoid anxiety, addiction, and burnout. Maybe um, before we dive into the depths of the book, maybe let's start in respect to like what led you to write the, the, the book. I, I think a lot of it came, as I said earlier, from a personal journey, you know, the need myself to speak up uh, about my journey and, um, and, and also to speak about other people's journey and, and what they went through. And, and there were, as, as you mentioned, the book has common themes and it, so I'm certainly not an expert in mental health and or uh, anxiety and depression, but I feel like I, I've dived into it over the last couple of years. And I certainly went through a personal process that made me sort of a, an acquired, you know, expert of it, so to speak. And I guess one of the things that, um, you know, from, from your expertise, is the system of getting people well actually creating sick workers? Um, I, I think they are. And I think I, I think the system has changed. The system has changed a lot over the last, um, and I think I mentioned that in the book, over the last 15 years. It became very much administrative. Uh, it became, it, it's running like a business. And I think that's pretty unanimous in all countries, whether it's England or United States. I think the or Canada even. I think uh, more and more the hospitals are run by people with MBAs and, and, and that have not as much patient-focused interests. And that's just not, I don't think it's a comment. I don't think it's an opinion. I think it's the, it's the reality. And that puts a lot of stress on, on the people and, and, and the systems. There's a lot of rules and regulation. There's the electronic medical record. There's the uh, increasing number of, of patients and the severity of sickness as well that has gone up. Part of it from the aging population, part of it from the technology. So that, that whole, that has created a, sort of an animal in itself. And the culture hasn't really changed in a way that we're expecting a lot of, of healthcare workers. We the, cult, the culture is a bit old, in the sense that um, you know the models are 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 the same. There's a lot of the uh, synchrony between the expectation of the milieu, so to speak, and the way we're trained, not just as doctors but as nurses to take care of patients. And and when that that clashes, that's where the the, there's a disbalance and that's where the I think the disease manifests itself with acute episodes yeah exactly because it's interesting because you know speaking to like friends and family a lot of whom have either still work in the profession or have worked in a profession previously they all recall why 
they got into the profession because they wanted to help people. But the realities behind it is, is yeah, it's almost above and beyond. In order to help people, there's a lot of expected challenges that are almost put on people for the sake of goodwill. Oh, well, you know, if, if you don't do this, then this person's going to get worse and, and plays to people's emotions rather than kind of supports people. So I have a couple of thoughts about what you just said, but the first one that comes is there's a sense of being the last one in line, right? So that you, if you don't help people, this is it, right? They don't have anywhere else to go. And it brings the concept, and I don't bring that in the book, but I've been speaking up about it in some of these interviews. We only play a role, and that's an important role, in a very short moment of people's disease, right? They've been sick for 15, 20 years. They've been smoking or they've been whatever. And so we're just another bozo on the bus. You know, we're not driving the bus. We're not putting fuel in the bus. So realizing that you play a role within the person's illness and not owning the outcome necessarily or not owning what happens to, to that person and what they decide to do with their, with their health is a, is a hard lesson. And it's very, it's not always teached well in the system. And, and I, it's like, for example, I do an operation on someone, you know, I do four bypass intervention in someone that has not been taking care of himself, that is smoking, that is not taking care of his diabetes it's hard for me to let them go and see that they won't change anything. It's, it's a stress. It's a, it's a deception, but it, again, I'm not driving the bus, right? They drive, they, they drive their own process. And so realizing that is a hard, is a hard uh, truth. Yeah, I guess. And you talk about change and I think change is essential because when we look at the healthcare profession as a whole, be that in the UK or overseas where you guys are based, what would you look to change based on the current challenges that you face at this present point in time? Well, the key, and I, I meant there's two things I think that I, I, I typically bring in, in on, on the forefront is first, I think we need to undo what a sum of what we've done as creating healthcare as a business. I think we need to put healthcare workers back into leadership position whether it's nurses, whether it's doctors, have them involved in the decision-making process. And, and so that doesn't feel like a top-down top down decision-making. And I mean, I've been in places where people have been fired in masses, right, to recuperate some money, like 3,000 people getting fired from a hospital because of the bottom line. And so, and that's an acute reaction to a more of a chronic issue. So I think putting people back into that leadership role. And, and I think a lot of the second part would be a lot of places, business has been very, I was just reading this article in Harvard Business Review, where, you know, the businesses in general, every other areas in business are moving away from, you know, driving to work at seven, getting back home at five, and driving another two hours back home. So this uh, ability to do hybrid work, right? And, and, and to leverage things like telemedicine, Zoom visits, you know, review of imagery or imaging, you know, from afar and, and, and allowing that flexibility for people to create their uh, model, right? You know, maintaining the efficiency, but creating a model where people can integrate what they do well in healthcare, with their with their life to balance it out. Historically, medicine is very hard is very difficult to adopt some of these 
things. And they've been forced with it, with COVID, right? The telemedicine and things like that. But now we're going straight back to where we were before. There's not even a, in Quebec, for example, there, you can't really get reimbursed for telemedicine anymore, right? Because they want everybody to go back face to face. That, I think, leveraging technology, leveraging hybrid work, it's been shown scientifically by companies like Google or Microsoft to increase retention, to decrease stress at work, to increase satisfaction, and improve life-work balance. And imagine you don't have to, let's say, one day a week on a clinic day, I don't have to see a patient face-to-face, -face, really, with all the technology now to plan a heart surgery. Really, I don't. And so imagine once a week, all the eight patients I need to operate on the next week, I can visit with them from home like we do now. You know, uh, they don't have to travel with grandma two hours away in the snow. They don't have to, you know, take a day off to do this. I don't have to go to work and wait for them to be late. So I think medicine has to evolve to adapt to that sort of system to, to make things better. Yeah, exactly. Because making things better is is essentially what we want to see happen. Because I don't know what it's like again where you are, but in the UK, for example, we've seen quite a, a reduction in the numbers of doctors and the numbers of nurses over the course of the last kind of 10, 12 years. One of the most well-documented kind of stories behind this is there was a book written by a guy called Adam Kay, who used to be a kind of junior doctor in the UK's NHS health service. He wrote a book called This Is Gonna Hurt. And within that, I kind of got changed and put onto the BBC and, and tell the, told the story on the BBC through, through like a TV series. And, you know, you see some of the, the real challenges that are, that are being faced by like doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals at the moment in respect to, in that particular case, that there was a, there was a junior doctor that actually took her life. There's these huge, big challenges that we need to face down and have like the open conversation about what they are. So like I've, I've just mentioned a few things that are taking place in the UK, but are you would you say resourcing is a, is a big impact in respect to, to where you are? And It's amazing to me that, I mean, the themes are all the same. I'd say, I think you're the first one I talk from, from overseas formally, not informally, but formally. And people always bring it up to say, oh, is it, is it the same over there? Is it the same? It's exactly the same. It's identical. I mean, we have, People change, and there's not a week or a month that goes by that I hear someone leaving medicine to go into private practice, leaving like public medicine to go do boutique private practice somewhere, or a nurse quitting ICU to go to do veins in pedi our pediatric clinic from nine to four, or people quitting altogether to go in business or to go. And to me, I mean, the government and Biden or whoever, they can inject as much money as they can. They can try to make these policies as much as they can. If they don't take care of the human resources within the system, that is the great threat for our health care for the next decade. I mean, people are tired. People are fed up. And then the culture has changed. It's not a, you know... This is what I am and nothing else anymore. It's it's not in the 1970s or you were just a heart surgeon or just a doctor and that's it, right? That's what you did and it's a life commitment. People have changed. People want to want to have work balance. So there's a morning when they wake up and they say, okay, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm, I'm just moving on to something else. But the challenges are identical, identical. 
Yeah, exactly. So bearing in mind the challenges, one of the obvious challenges is the high intensity environments in which you guys work within. Just maybe walk me through some of the impacts on the delivery of care and performance. I think uh, a lot of these environments are similar. As I said earlier, whether it's business, whether you're a nurse in the ICU or you're a, just a someone taking care of a lot of patients in an outpatient clinic, there is a lot of challenges and, and some of them are having to do too much. And doing too much has been scientifically proven to first make you lose time on a daily basis. I mean, it, it's a fact that if you get distracted, imagine how, how, how many more times you are, but let's say 10 times an hour you get distracted. That's about every 10 minutes. That's not a whole lot, right? When you get sort of a phone call at work or you get somebody coming to your office or you get a pager, Every time you get distracted from the work, it takes about six to seven seconds to refocus on what you were doing before. So over a course of a day, that's about two and a half hours lost. And loss of time or doing too much has been first linked to anxiety, but also linked to errors, errors in the ICU, errors in medication, errors, and, 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 and that's not even accounted for long hours or extended hours or obligated this, you know, time and things. And so ultimately the people that are paying the price of us doing too much is, is the patient because they, they are affected by these mistakes and these errors in medication and things like that, or these things you forget because you get distracted doing too much. And the importance of this is, is now, I know in the UK, but I know in the US, there's recently been this famous case of a nurse who is, I think she got murder charges, secondary murder charges for making a mistake in medication, right? After a long hours and shift, she lost her degree. She lost the ability to practice. And actually it wasn't a hospital I worked before at Vanderbilt. And so now there's a precedent, right? <laughs> so we are, we are now telling people, if you make mistakes, you'll be prosecuted. You get into this really kind of dicey system, dicey area where you're asking people to do, to give it all in the name of, <laughs> right? But if they give it all, they make mistake, then you're going to punish them. So, you know what I mean? So, so it's, it's a pervasive system. And if we don't stop that wheel, we're going to be in real problem. Yeah, like the whole process of giving it all to have it all take away. It's it just seems, you know, a bit crazy to put all that added pressure on people are already like dealing with insane levels of pressure that we would, you know, like I'm I'm not in the profession, but if if I was working on like A and E and seeing some of the things that those guys see, it it's crazy the the pressure that's added to them. And I think that kind of brings me to talking about like the symptoms of maladaptive healthcare workers and just understanding those a little bit more. I guess the premise to that is in the book I I wanted to get away from from describing burnout or anxiety or some of these other issues as the problem, right? To me, like anything else, there are a symptom or something deeper. And that's when in the book we talk about a chronic misadaptive process or a chronic issue working in the environment. And these acute moments, whether it's burnout or these clinical manifestations becomes these episodes, right? Uh, where you just can't function. Your body says, okay, that's it. I something broke. And if you don't change the base or change the underlying problem, 
you just wake up one day and you've been through six or seven cycles of the burnout, depression, anxiety, you know, divorces and things. And you wake up, you're, you know, 20 years later and you're like, okay, what happened? <laughs> you know, so, so I describe these symptoms and I, I, and then these are not, I mean, it's not rocket science, but I just, I took all the testimonies and I described them in four different classes that are describing acute moments within somebody's disease process. And so there's things like that are personal. I mean, and we oftentimes forget about those, but the financial issues, the divorces, the failed relationships, the, you know, the, the problems that were, so the, the so some of the, some of the things that are personal, I mean, it's not always normal to hit, to have a good stable job and then hit these repetitive issues. Then there's behavioral, right? So things that uh, people just lack of empathy, lack of interest, so things that are, are changing careers and things. And so uh, multiple changes and over the, so, so that's not a normal, it's also an acute process. And then there's physical stuff. Uh, I have testimonies of people every time they were walking in the hospital, healthy people, like 30 year old people getting a heart attack every time they walk into the hospital or people getting acute arthritis episodes every time they worked. And the only thing that worked was to give it away or change the way they were acting with the system. And then finally, there's uh, psychological manifestation, the more common ones being uh, burnout, anxiety, and some of these uh, things that we know. But again, the concept of these episodes being acute manifestations, it's like you're sick from heart disease and then all of a sudden you get a heart attack. It's an acute problem, right? But if you don't change the underlying process of eating well and taking care of yourself, then it's going to just come back. You, you did mention empathy in there as well, which kind of made me think of a TED talk I saw a little while ago by Dr. Sammy, I think her name is. And she talks about the empathy switch. And it's interesting that I just wanted to explore that in a little bit more detail with yourself. Yeah. You know, we think about depression and burnout as what they are, right? So acute, deep rest issues where you can't function. But depression, and we, we realize that depression and burnout are more subtle, right? So an empathy in, in all the studies, I think Ariana Huntington is also a pretty well-published author on this. It, little things are as important as the big burnout, right? You can't function. And one of the first symptoms is uh, lack of empathy and, and lack of empathy for our understanding. So empathy at work. I mean, I was in some ways in that period where I couldn't care less if a patient had a complication. It wasn't my fault. It was sort of the way it was. And, um, and that's a problem. <laughs> you know, you get numb, you, 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 you lose interest of work. And so losing interest, lack of empathy, also lack of empathy from a personal, we always forget about that, but you, you come home and then everything seems numb. Your wife having an issue or she's, I don't know, she couldn't order this thing on Amazon that she wants for your kid or whatever. And you're like, eh, whatever, you know, you, you don't really care about things. So not caring about anything is a really small symptom of empathy. And as a matter of fact, there's a study last year that was published post-COVID in some specialties that about 50% of specialists like critical care, gynecologists, ICU doctor, meet those criteria of mild depression, 60% of people meet those criteria when we use some of these softer things like uh, like empathy or interest and things like that. 
Exactly. And looking at where we are at the moment, a lot of people talk about a kind economy and empathy being central to to some of the change uh, that's taking place globally. Looking at that, what do you think could be done both on a professional side with people kind of dealing with this kind of ongoing, it doesn't have to be huge traumas, but ongoing traumas that is kind of driving almost a numbness to to some of these challenges and also what can be done to support those going through through these difficulties? Yeah, I, I wrote an editorial about that in our in our little community of heart surgeons saying that what is going to, so you'll see where I get with that. So saying that the things that will destroy our specialty, it's a small specialty, heart surgery, right? Is the way we treat each other. You know, we're ruthless in medicine, whether it's between nurses, between doctors, we are still very ruthless with each other. We don't, it's not natural to come and support someone. We tend to feel elevated when someone's not doing well, you know, and it's obvious. And, and that to me is the first step. So to try to understand where people come from within the system, why they're acting a certain way and support them. I mean, I've had, I wasn't always, I was the one, you know, in the past elevating myself with people's failure. And now I, I, I guess I'm, I'm more at peace with an, on an everyday basis. And I have people coming to me and say, okay, I'm not doing well. Or I, I just feel stressed and things. And so, Trying to be open-minded to that kind of thing is what's going to help our, our our system. And I think from a community standpoint, recognizing that is a key. Now, creating space within work is also, I think, important. I was reading this book called Unicorn Space. So it's a really smart concept where you create this artistic, non-science-based moment during the day for yourself, whatever it is, writing down, journaling, and you know, painting, whatever. So they call it the unicorn space. And to, to some extent, I wouldn't call it the unicorn, but creating that space on a daily basis for yourself and, and putting yourself in the middle of the storm as opposed as you know, in the eye of the storm yeah, as opposed to sort of being in the being in the swirl is is what I think is is, is it will help people and and the systems and department need to foster that kind of stuff to help people being in the flow state within the system as opposed to being reaction reactionary to, to that and now we so that kind of gives us the concepts of sort of mindfulness and creating a space between the uh, stimulus and the response but but when you create that space between the stressors and the environment and what you're going to do whether it's to say no whether it's to reduce your workload whether it's to you know, spread the work around so that you don't always get the bad cases. That's an important key to function long-term in the system. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Yeah, so in previous podcasts, I've talked about something similar and I, I call it as like a toolbox. You've you basically got to get a number of things that help you on a day-by-day basis function mm-hmm. to the best of your possible abilities. So in my respect, like, <laughs> we've got like two dogs who like to go on dog walks. I've got, you know, we've got the Peloton and stuff like that. We've got, we did have a gym until it closed. So I need to find another gym. But um, yeah, like what, what would form your toolbox in respect to <laughs> help you? Well, it's funny you bring that up. I just gave a presentation to an executive group and I call this the self-care tools and then the acute uh, crisis tools. So I have two set of two, I have two slides. It's kind of funny from my standpoint, I have a cup, I have to have a very too fancy coffee in the morning all the time. I mean, a coffee that takes me five, six, seven minutes to think about brew, whatever. So there's a, and it has to be a specific mug. There needs to be some kind of music, you know, <laughs> ambiance. There needs to be a candle light up, you know, uh, and I have to go, when I go to work, I always take the same route. It's a seven minute ride, but I always have to take the same route. So I have to create this sort of self-regulation around it. So, and then uh, at night I walk the dog. I, when I take a shower, I have to listen to Megadeth and really hardcore music. And my wife has our own. She has to be silenced. It has to be this perfect bowl of cereal. And so these are the, the day-to-day stuff. And then the acute stuff, I have a set of tools for the acute things. So when it's really not, I feel like things are not going well. She has a different set of things, but she's a cardiologist and she'll go for a run for like six hours or she'll go for a bike ride for 12 hours, you know? So she'll have these, I know when she said, I need to go for 120 K of bike. I'm like, okay, all right. (laughs) But for me, it will be like to take my car and go eat a dinner at the bar recently, like close by a $200 steak, you know, with uh, all the, all the sides and all this stuff, you know, like an, or to make a mega fancy dinner, I cook quite a bit. And so cooking a two hour and a half meal for myself in the middle of the week, you know? So these are the, the cute things I do to, to stay sane, so to speak. But 
I encourage, I give that talk and I encourage people to create that slide from themselves. What do they do on a daily basis to maintain their balance? And what do they want to do when things are not going well? Yeah. And it sounds like it's something to do with control because in the inner elements of the role, you don't often know who you're going to be dealing with. And there's a lot of different challenges from that. So that is obviously outside the realms of your own control. So do you think that the desire to kind of do these other little bits, these routines, do you think it, it yeah. has it's centered on the premise of control? Absolutely. So, you know, it, it gets to the some of the concept of mindfulness, you know, and so the control is one of those buckets, you know, control the things that you can control within your environment. And, you know, they always say when you read about that, you should try to control the things you can reach, though, like as far as your hand, like in as an image. And there are things that are going to be out of reach. And so controlling your bubble around you is, is really helpful. One of my mentors used to say, you will never be, and it, at the time it kind of felt funny to hear that, but he says, you'll never be a good heart surgeon or internationally recognized heart surgeon until you're happy at home. You're happy within yourself with things you can control. And at the time I was just, I just brushed it off. I said, whatever, you know, that's kind of boring. And, and, but now I realized the importance of that. It was sort of a, it was bringing some of these concepts of, of resilience and, and mindfulness or so controlling things that are within reach and, and the control of little things it's like this, uh, it's like the book, you know, tiny habits. If you control little things around you, then little things sort of add up and it sort of creates this circle of trust around yourself. Exactly. There's a few times during this conversation, you've kind of mentioned what you were potentially like in the past versus the present. Do a, com- a quick comparison between the two and, and what, what would you say have been the biggest lessons that you've learned for your own developmental journey? Well, well, that's a self-loaded question, but, you know, I went through therapy quite a bit and we did a lot of that role playing. The person I had was phenomenal and she was a, she was a bit out of the box type person where we would sort of through breathing and reflection, we w- I would put myself in the other myself that I didn't like and sort of look at myself and sort of compare the two. And well, to, sh- to make it short, you would hate me. I mean, most people would have hated me as who I was before. I mean, I was, um, I was competitive. I was perfectionist. I was um, ruthless with people around me. A lot of the things were for myself. You know, I've, I've reached very quickly, very high levels in my profession, you know, being at the Mayo Clinic and things like that. But in order to do that, I stepped on just about everybody around me to get up there. And I'm not, you know, I'm not necessarily apologetic about it, as crazy as it seems. It's just the way I was. And so part of the recovery also is to turn the page, you know, today I'm not the one I was yesterday. But and so today I'm much more balanced. I control things. I respect people around me which is a big difference from where where I was before. I mean, through that process of therapy, I had to forgive myself, like literally openly tell myself I'm forgetting for, because it's always hard to do that, right? You're, you're always, well, I could have been that way or I, I felt this opportunity and things. Part of the recovery is forgiving yourself for what what you've accomplished or who you've stepped on. And we're not, there weren't many people coming down the step on <laughs> to hold me back, you know, on the way down, let's put it like that. <laughs> and it's interesting that you talk about like 
forgiving your past because it I, I look at it in the in a way that you know you can't control the past like the past is gone the past is the past but i think what a lot of us tend to do is we tend to carry that baggage that, that all those things that we've learned through past experiences we carry with us uh, in the present and it's it forms part of our future unless we realize the benefit of letting go so if you're able to let go of things that aren't actually serving you and aren't actually helping others you become a lot more like lighter in respect to you don't have to carry all that heavy baggage a lot of people are, I think they they put too much pressure on themselves in respect to things that has happened in the past, and I think a lot of, you can get a lot more reward, a benefit, connection, clarity, happiness if you're able to let go of things that have happened in the past and just look at the present. What can you do now and look to the future and make it as bright as you possibly can be? With that in mind, there are a lot of people that will be listening to this podcast that will probably not be at that stage of their journey at the moment. Ultimately, they will be looking for other pieces of advice, like steps steps to prevent, stop, heal, and some of the challenges that they're going through at this present point in time. What would you say in respect to helping them strive towards a better life? Um, Well, maybe just a first comment on what you just said. Never be afraid to turn the page on the chapter of your life. I think that's a you know the regrets is 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 the greatest impediment to change and we don't always realize it but once you start making that real flip of the chapter that's where you start opening opportunities and and getting better that's one and then i would think i think that you know picking up the book or whatever it is picking up a book or listening to a podcast or talking to a friend about your challenges is a first step any step forward is good and so um, there's a lot of resources out there, whether it's my book, whether it's myself. I mean, if you have questions, I, I'll give you my email at the end, but and there's a lot of people out there to help and any help is good. And so the, this is, a, I'd say the message here would be, whether it's picking up a book, reading one of the testimonies, uh, re- you're listening to your podcast, the movement is what's it's important, right? And so the movement forward is what is what starts healing. Exactly. It's always about movement forward. So I want to bring up some questions that we've had from um, some of our audience that most of them work in healthcare. I'm not going to name the names, but I'll just read out some of the questions. So the first one, they wanted to know how much clinical work are you doing now and how do you maintain the boundaries to be able to have a work-life balance? Well, I'm very fortunate now. So I do, I'm very fortunate to, we were talking about this hybrid work earlier. I've over the last two years, I've proposed a lot of these hybrid models to hospitals. I offered my service in sort of hybrid way. So I work in a place right now that all three partners are feeling the same about work-life balance. So we have full-time work for us is 18 days in a month. So we have about 10 days off a month each, and we cover the call for a month, you know, a month at a time that way. And that allows me every every month to have a period of time where I can regroup. Now, during that 20 days where I work, I work pretty, I mean, I, 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 I blind everything else. I mean, I don't take appointments or I focus on heart surgery. So I do during that time, probably three to six cases a week still. So pretty busy. Um, so that's my clinical work, but it's about 60% of my month typically. And I'm looking forward. I mean, it's not like, 
I'm shy about it or apologetic. I'm looking forward for that time off because when I come back, I'm a better doctor, a better human being. I'm not angry at people and things like that. So it's it's time to to regroup. Now, during those 10 days off, I I take some time off, of course, but then I really try to focus on, on things that also drive me. And that is coaching. I have a couple of physicians and nurses that I follow uh, that we meet on a regular basis to talk about their challenges. Sometimes it's a chit chat, you know, uh, but I do help them as a coach to, and then usually we do six months at the time, but to help them progress into, into their challenges. I, I, I have uh, a business uh, where we also follow students, you know, as early on from all different areas of healthcare that are interested to learn how to be in a flow before hitting the you know the stages of being where where I was and so I during those 10 days a month I really focus on the things that drive me so I'd say if I answer you answer your question more specifically 60% of the time I'd say during a month I'm I'm busy practicing and doing doing heart surgery and then the other 40 I'm doing either time off or focusing on businesses We've got another question. So this one says, it's still a work in progress for me, but how do I and what advice would you provide me in respect to knowing what I can and can't control? So to me, you know, that that's a harder question, but the way to see this is what can you influence directly? So an example, we always feel like, say, work or the amount of work we can't control. But ask yourself, are you able to email or talk to your administrator and say, I want to do one, I just take me as an example. I want to see X number of patients in clinic a day. That's it. I want to do one surgery a day. So they know now, like when I come back for work, I do a case a day, four days a week, not more, not less, <laughs> you know, so, so that I, I used to do three or four a day and I was not in control. So things that you feel you can change by an action. Now, an, an example of things you can control would be, for example, time or whether you're going to attend your kids play, wh- whether you're going to be at that meeting or whether you're going to be on that board's meeting. Things you can change immediately to create space, right? I was on all the committees possible, you know, the president of the International Society of Heart Lung Transplant. And with an email, I said, okay, I'm I'm sorry for personal reasons. I can't go on and be the president in the middle of a mandate. Now, it wasn't a fun email to send, but most of the emails back where I hope everything's okay, good luck. That's the stuff you can control. Now, the amount of pa- sick patients, the complications, the finance related to the hospital, sickness, you know, family and things you can't control. And so things you can't stop by an email. So if I have to give an advice, things you can control or things you can stop by either an action, by talking to someone or by sending out an email, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. If, if somebody gave you like a massive pot of money and gave you the control to fix healthcare, what would, what would you look towards doing in the short, medium and long term? Each hospital would have a um, pod, you know, instead of a uh, a subway or a 
cheap cafeteria or whatever, I would replace all that. And you'll see where I come, this comes from. I would replace all that with areas for people to meditate, to learn about anxiety, burnout, to do yoga, spin classes, eat well, get good coffee, little pods, you know, of people to promote self-care. And it's crazy to me that Google again or Microsoft have that, right? They can come and work in jeans. They can go and do yoga in the morning, bring their kid to work and put them in the whatever. And it's crazy to me that the place that's healing people, hospitals, does not have that. <laughs> you know, I would every single hospital would have a Simon pod everywhere where they get rid of. I mean, we have a subway in our hospital right across the cardiology department. And how crazy is this? I mean, there's yoga mat material into the bread of subways. I mean, that's been in Europe, you don't because they've won the battle. But in the US, we still have a chemical that you can find in yoga mats in breads of subways, you know? And that's what we have for our people, our workers, or our patients right across the heart department. <laughs> you know, how crazy is this? And so I would, I would eliminate all that and create these healthy environments where people can self-care. We have the same here. You go into like a hospital here and I think they've, because they've, because a lot of it's privatized, it's not fully privatized, but they're going that way. There's a lot of like facilities and services that are all externally done. And yeah, like the subways and I haven't seen one with a McDonald's in yet, but like can imagine it. Yeah, listen, you was like that in the children hospital. Now they got rid of it, I think a decade ago. But when I started at Vanderbilt, and I'm not afraid to mention it because they know who they are <laughs> in the children hospital at Vanderbilt, which one of the biggest university in Nashville, they had a McDonald's in the children hospital. And the justification was that, well, it has to be cool food for the kids. That's what they want to have. How crazy is this? So they got rid of it now. It's all healthy stuff, but McDonald's should not be in hospitals. That's uh... <laughs> um, Looking at, this is another question. So looking at your own developmental growth journey and what you've learned, what book aside from your own would you recommend that really helped you? There was one, there's one book that I like to mention, and I'm not an act, actor's biography book by any means. Matthew McConaughey wrote a Green book Light. called Green Light. And, yeah. uh, and, and I was a bit skeptical about it, you know, and it sounds like you read it. It's a, it's a celebration of journaling. The guy is not the greatest author, you know, but, and, and I'm not even comparing to myself, but in general, right? So there's not a whole lot of science behind it. Sort of like being a great journal. And when he says green light is about journaling about the things, about everything, right? Journaling when it's going well, bumper stickers or whatever he's calling it, but when it's going well, when it's not going well, so that you start seeing trends or green lights or things that you do when things are going well. So that when it's not going well, or you're feeling stress, you go back to what you write when things are going well and you go back to that. So that book was, a to me, the concept of that was a revelation because I was writing a lot when things were not going well. I had this bad day, I won't do this again, whatever. Very negative, but... But it's helpful to journal when things are positive too, and that's and I and I so I like the concept of that book. I don't think there's any 
better book that talks about journaling, you know, or the importance of journaling in that regards. And then just for my own interest, there's a book that's called Think Like a Monk. And it's from Jay Shetty. It's a very interesting journey. And I wish I would I would meet it someday, meet him, or have tons of questions for him. But he's basically was raised in the very conservative Indian, I think, family. He was meant to go to be a monk, did all the sort of the seminaries and things and went and India and then was going to be doing that and just like find the silence and all that stuff and decided to apply the theme, the themes of, of being a month among two open up and speak up about self-development and apply some of these principles of a lot about resilience, a lot about being in the moment, about self-awareness and, and sort of taking uh, pauses, the mindfulness to the you know 21st century. So it's really interesting to read the book. Uh, I read it twice. And every time I read it, I, I find a a part that I can apply to things. So think like a monk, Jay Shetty, and um, and as funny as it is, Green Light from Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> I haven't read Jay's book, but uh, it's on my list of things to read. But yeah, when I read uh, Matthew's book, Green Light, the thing I really liked about that was the fact that um, how he not only the the journaling and the reflection piece, but I like the fact of who he's chasing, right? He's not the, It's not about external competition. He wants to chase himself. So there's that famous speech that he talks about. I think it's the Oscar speech, right? Where he, where right. He says, who he wants to chase. My like, heroes in 10 years, yeah. yeah. And, and he's, he's chasing himself. He's trying to become the best version of himself. And that opinion, that's that's probably the best way to start in respect to change. Like, start with yourself. What what do you want to be? And why? And, and what's driving that? And if you're the, your only competition, then there's a lot of positives that can come from that because you you are holding yourself accountable to your own actions. And I must say, if you haven't read, there's a book called Clarity, Clarity and Connection by Young Pablo. I just read that earlier. And oh yeah, that book's amazing. Based on similar type of types of books that we're reading, that's um, yeah. definitely another good one. I mean, there's so many books out there. It's, it's hard to, uh, I, I like the ones that are at least the, the ones that are exemplified by by life experiences, you know, maybe I'm a bit biased, but but it's so hard to to uh, to find books out there because there's so many of them, right? Yeah, yeah, I could talk to you all day, and um, I just want to like wrap it up and just understand a little bit about what would be the key takeaway, the lasting message that you'd leave to our audience, particularly those that are maybe struggling. At, their own experiences, maybe at the beginning point of that journey, dealing with anxiety, burnout, depression. What what would you kind of say to those guys? Well, I guess the you know I give a, a presentations about this, and I always finish uh, these sort of TED talks by saying it's okay not to be okay. I think for it's is always a uh, culture around the fear of of being sort of ostracized or put in in a bucket the people that are speaking up about a problem but it's okay not to be okay and and to feel like you're not doing well and then speaking up about it this is the first step and to that point i would i mean the intent of this book is is to send a message but I think this problem in healthcare is so important that we should have movements such as I'm not comparing the topics, but I'm just saying the movements to the magnitude of 
Black Lab Miners or Me Too, or I think healthcare mental illness should be at the forefront of every social media. We should have conversation like this, open conversation and list that hit 2 million sort of viewers, you know, so that people start realizing that that's what's going to be affecting the most our healthcare. So I think the more we speak about it, the more we're a community around this, uh, the better. And I think the I think the power in this is is when we reach out and and cross sort of those barriers of different domains, right, with similar patterns. You know, start start seeing this as a community more than the silo thing or an, as an example. I mean, I'm tired of seeing of hearing a newspaper because it's sort of shock. Somebody killed himself because they were burnout. You know, in healthcare, it's it's not the single. I mean, the single stories are hyper important, but the community around this is is what matters and and what we're going to do about it. So I think that would be my message. Yeah, it's perfect. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Peter. Um, I'm looking, uh, I was, it was very, uh, very fun to talk to you. Thank you for the invite. And if people want to see more healthcareanonymous.com is the website where you get all the information on how to get the book breakthroughpoints.com as well is where we give tips and pitfalls about functioning in those high intensity environment. And my email, my first and last name at mac.com. If people have questions or feel like they need to reach out. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Purpose Made podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to Purpose Made wherever you normally get your podcasts to hear the latest news and views. You can also find and follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter or contact Peter directly to connect, inquire about Purpose Made or request to be featured on the podcast. We look forward to welcoming you back soon for another episode. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.